So the opioid crisis has dominated headlines for the past few years, but over that same time, there's been another drug crisis hiding in plain sight, benzodiazepines. I think we've all heard of benzodiazepines. It's the drug class well-known for medications such as Xanax, Ativan, Valium, um, lots of other ones in that area. And they are under-recognized and they're an important contributor to the public health crisis of drug morbidity and mortality. And for me, this um, really took front and center after I read a memoir by Melissa Bond called Blood Orange Night, in which she battles severe insomnia only to become basically physiologically dependent on uh, Ativan or lorazepam. Um, and it's a difficult story to listen to. Um, and it is definitely an extreme story, but it definitely opened my eyes to the lack of attention on this powerful class of drugs and the problems that they cause. Um, you know, further, there's a Netflix documentary that was brought to our attention called take your pill Xanax. And it further magnifies really the pervasiveness of these drugs. Like there's all these satirical scenes in there from TV and movies using sentences like just take a Valium like the rest of us or Xanax cool. Did you bring enough for everyone? You know, things that, that just make it seem like it's so normal. Um, and so I, I, I'm really excited to talk about this. Julie, what, what does this topic bring to mind for you? Yeah, I think it makes me think of, you know, when we see patients for the first time or when we're opening up their electronic medical health like record, um, their medication list gets sort of auto-populated by whatever program we use. And I will tell you very commonly, uh, the, the, it's all listed alphabetically and the, the A, the first one is Alprazolam or Xanax. Um, so I'm sure you'll give me some information about, um, you know, how, how prevalent the use of these medications can be, but it sure seems like it's quite prevalent. Yeah. I mean, I think the data would back it, back it up, Julie, that, that, that these are um, on a lot of people's medication list. Just for some background, the first benzodiazepine was approved in 1960. It was chlordiazepoxide. Try to say that 10 times fast. That's also known as Librium, which is much easier to say. Um, and now there's over 35 benzoderivatives on the market. So certainly there are uh, plenty of variety and choice. Um, the thing about benzos is they're really good at what they do. And th the indications that they're used for are like anxiety, insomnia, muscle spasms, seizures, and anesthesia. And the problem mostly comes down to the fact that they're prescribed for longer periods of time than what they were intended for. Just to give you some background, about 5% of people between the ages of 18 and 80 reported having used a benzodiazepine from a study that was done in 2008. So it's a lot of people. They're generally considered safe for what is called short-term use. And short-term use is maybe the most debatable aspect of this because that's mostly defined as less than one month. But recent data showed that 35% of patients who got a new benzo prescription were still using it at three months. 15% of them were still using it at one year and 5% were still using it eight years. So it's people that are using it much longer than the, the one month. So needless to say, the long-term use comes with increased risk for addiction and physiologic dependence. And we're currently seeing serious harm to people from these drugs. So today, as Julie perfectly foreshadowed, we're going to welcome back our addiction medicine specialist to help us understand benzodiazepines in the current state of this underappreciated drug crisis. You'll learn how these drugs work, why they're effective, what, what the risks are, as well as the many facets of dependence, withdrawal, and detoxification. Ready to go? Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends.
All right, welcome back. We're ready to break down the silent crisis that is benzodiazepine dependence. Let's welcome back a friend of your podcast, friend of your doctor, friends, and addiction medicine specialist at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois, Dr. Gail Bosch. Welcome back to the podcast, Gail. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Nice to yeah. see you both. This is a quick turnaround. Addiction medicine and, and uh, substances, for better or worse, are a hot topic. Um, maybe for better because we're talking about them, and maybe for worse because we have to talk about them. Correct. Um, so the last time we spoke, we discussed alcohol use. Great episode for anybody listening. Number 32, uh, if you're looking on uh, your podcast uh, app right now. Um, and you're back so soon because the book I read, which I mentioned in the intro, smacked me right in the middle of the face. And I, I just needed to know more. And so this was a your doctor friend's question from one of the doctor friends. Um, and so let's start right at the beginning. What's a benzodiazepine? Well, that's a good question. You mentioned them earlier, the first one being Librium, so named for equilibrium. They all have uh, trade names that were, were cleverly named. So the first one was Librium for getting you good equilibrium. And also the Z drugs, um, like um, uh, the trade names are like uh, Halcyon and Restoril. And so the commonly prescribed sleeping pills, they're all in one big clump. Um, and we can think of them as sort of like alcohol in a pill form because they act on the exact same receptor that uh, alcohol works on. And before benzos, we had the more lethal category of barbiturates, um, like the Valley of the Dow group of pills. We still need them for uh, uh, epilepsy and certain uh, medical procedures. Um, but the barbiturates uh, also act on the GABA receptor. So the large category of what we call central nervous system depressants. And so we got rid of the barbiturates. We went to the benzodiazepines. Like, why did we have to do that? Well, um, uh, you know, barbiturates were very welcomed when they first came on the scene because they helped people sleep. They were broadly applied uh, for a number of psychiatric conditions they allowed psychiatrists to deinstitutionalize the masses, which at first seemed like a good thing. So they gave some comfort. You know, they sedated people. They sedated people too well. A lot of people died from respiratory depression. But this was sort of seen as the first sort of way in which to, in pill form, calm people down, right? So for the first time, along with antipsychotics, we were able to provide some welcomed relief in some cases to people who otherwise couldn't calm down. They were also used medically for surgery and, and other conditions. But as with all things, we kind of overused, goofed it up, and people started to overtake and addict to them. So there's, there are two sides to every, every story, right? So benzos, benzodiazepines were invented as a safer option, a so-called safer option. The first benzo was created after Milltown came, meprobamate came in the 1950s. And soon after that, the first benzo, as you said, was chlorides epoxide or Librium. And these, these were welcomed because people weren't dying of respiratory depression. That's where we set the bar. Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. So Gail, it sounds like, you know, benzodiazepines came on the market to help, you know, take the place of barbiturate medications, which were quite dangerous clearly. Um, you know, but obviously they're very, very effective, which is why they can be harmful. I mean, it, it seems similar to like opiate type medications. They are generally quite good 
pain alleviators, uh, but their um, safety risk profile is is quite high. Um, you know, we use these things because they 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 work really well. Well, so like Jeremy said, I wouldn't want surgery without benzodiazepine. I certainly wouldn't want to remember my my surgery. I don't want to, as a class, make these just all bad, but they're very helpful for amnesia before surgery. They're necessary for alcohol withdrawal. We often use them for benzo withdrawal. We use them for some movement disorders, some seizure conditions. Um, We now have many safer options that we once didn't. When I was a resident 30 years ago, we prescribed them broadly, as we once did with the barbiturates, for comfort. So for sleep, you know, when I I trained and I was very well trained over 30 years ago, when people couldn't sleep, we felt it was our obligation to help them sleep. And really the only thing that we could provide them with was a benzo. And I'm sure some of those folks who I uh, ethically prescribed a benzo to 30 years ago are still taking them. And therein lies the problem, right? It also really depends on who are you prescribing the benzo to? So these are no longer first-line choice, as we once thought they were, uh, for anxiety, you know, because, again, during my residency, which was 30 years ago, we had the advent of many antidepressants that we now use uh, well uh, if people do need a medication as a first-line choice for depression and anxiety. So the first-line treatment these days, if people have clinical depression or anxiety, and they do need a medication for relief, we use drugs in the category of like SSRIs, SNRIs, so things familiar to us like Prozac, Zoloft, Effexor, those type of things uh, that aren't habit-forming and that people won't have withdrawal from if they abruptly stop them and that they won't uh, get a tolerance to. Yeah, Gail, that's a really great point. I mean, I think that it's helpful to acknowledge that there are more effective medications to help treat these conditions because these conditions and the symptoms that we're treating that have been treated with benzodiazepines are very anxiety inducing to treat. I mean, they, they involve a quite a bit of suffering. Um, and, and, you know, the, the temperature in the room when you're um, trying to help somebody and you're seeing a patient one-on-one who is experiencing you know, panic attacks or, or anxiety, or they haven't slept in days. It's easy as the, the healthcare practitioner, as the clinician to absorb that anxiety and want to ease their suffering quickly with a very effective pill. And so I think, you know, physicians are human, um, healthcare providers are human beings and they, they want to help and we have empathy and we want to do a thing that's going to make this person feel better and make them feel better quickly. But, you know, Certainly there's, there's problems with, um, certainly there's more sustainable choices to be made to help manage these conditions. Right. And you can imagine, you know, that a typical scenario is going to the emergency room thinking you're dying of a heart attack and the provider uh, may, you know, w- without meaning harm saying, this is where I have great news for you. you you're not dying. You're having a panic attack, a panic attack and I'm, I'm going to help you. I'm going to provide you with immediate relief. And you, you get a Xanax pill and you think like, oh, oh, good Lord, thank God, you know, and you, you feel the mental and the physical onset of relief immediately. But if it has been 
given to you without the caveat. Now, this is going to uh, provide you with immediate relief, but I also want you to realize this isn't the answer to your problem, right? We're going to give you this relief. It's going to help your breathing slow down. It's going to calm you down mentally. And then we're going to figure out <clears throat> exactly what's going on, right? And so the, the setup is this isn't the answer to your problems because, and this is what we often hear, you know, people who've had uh, sort of low-grade anxiety, it, it's, a, it's a, a match made in heaven or hell. They get their first taste and it's sort of like the brain is, you know, it's a lock and key. And they literally feel like life's questions are now answered. Hmm. So it's, it's, uh, it's up to the prescriber to prescribe correctly and also to de-prescribe, which is something we, we're learning much more about now that we, we didn't know. Right. Yeah, I feel like you've really set the stage for a lot of what we're going to talk about in this episode, just because of how that initial feeling has to feel for that person and how you'd want to continue to feel that way or be scared that you were ever going to feel the other way. Yeah. Um, w- before we move on from kind of the background on the drug, you've mentioned a few things in terms of like you said the word GABA, you talked about how it's like alcohol, but let's just real quick in a in, in a summary that would make sense to the listeners, like how do these things actually work? So we, we can think of um, the, the central nervous system as having sort of an excitatory and an inhibitory, like a teeter-totter. And for us, we, we're always looking for balance, right? For homeostasis, right? Fancy word for just maintaining balance. And when we are out of balance for whatever reason and with any disease state, we don't feel well, right? And so when our excitatory inhibitory system becomes imbalanced, and sort of uh, one of the examples we use for teaching purposes is fight or flight, right? So the primitive survival system in us is programmed for fight or flight, like, you know, uh, running away from the, the tiger in the caveman scenario, which we no longer have to do. But sometimes our nervous system is dysregulated so that we're over-responding. You know, th- these days we don't, we don't have to do that, but sometimes our nervous system is sort of over-programmed. What's the Ferris Bueller line? Like life moves pretty fast these days or something. So sometimes people are in sort of a constant state of dysregulation and their, uh, their, their mind is sort of cueing them like well, something needs to change. And people often describe, you know, fear and angst. Um, oftentimes trauma comes into play. So this feeling of imbalance is uh, a sheer agony. Uh, and I think the book you referred to, Jeremy, I think the first part of the book really uh, does a wonderful job of describing uh, insomnia and just uh, extreme insomnia and sleep deprivation and the mental anguish uh, that one suffers because of that. So that's like an extreme imbalance uh, that the author of the book needed relief from. She, she really needed relief. Mm-hmm. And when she was prescribed a benzo, she found um, some partial relief, at least. She needed to sleep. She needed to, to balance to survive. She literally needed to sleep to survive. Yeah, I thought the Netflix documentary did an interesting job of using what you said there with fight or flight and basically saying that you know we, we were given that mechanism to help us survive. And now we spend most of our days in fight. 
that yeah, we're, all yeah. try, we're, all, we're all trying to be productive and do something at every single moment of every waking hour. So we constantly stay in fight and, yeah. and, and that is incredibly dysregulating. And <laughs> I watched that documentary like over the past couple of days. And so I was in the car reflecting on that. And I was like, I do think I spend a lot of time in fight, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting. And maybe the listeners too. I feel like one of the things that we as providers always want to do is help the patient and I think sometimes that things that can be lost upon are long-term benefits versus short-term benefits. And in a world in which your health grades and patient surveys and all of the things that involve you being able to continue to be a provider, don't just rely upon whether that person a year and a half from now is in a better place. Um, even though, you know, maybe what would be the better thing to do that. And so over prescription, I think is very, very easy. And I would assume that that's a lot of what you're seeing, Gail, is probably people that have been exposed to over prescription. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think that's often in our language about it, it, half of the time in, in our outpatient clinic, we're assisting folks in, in deprescribing. Now we have people who are open to either decreasing or simplifying their benzo pain regimen or more open, you know, just as is starting to happen with the opioid trend. And unfortunately it took an epidemic publicity of an epidemic. You know, we, we have a prescription pill epidemic. So the silent epidemic is with stimulants, with benzos, with alcohol, with tobacco, right? Opioids get all the press, but uh, there are just as many consequences from the other things. And um, many of this is physician cost, right? Because we overprescribed. There were, um, there was a surplus of pills and the more pills there are, the more supply there is for use and misuse, right? So we oversupplied and we fueled this fire and now we're dealing with the consequences. And so oftentimes our language is, well, it would be easy for me to refill your prescription, you know, that, that, that would be easy, but instead we're going to have a conversation about what might be more helpful to you. Right. So that involves some time and a bit of struggling in the appointment and some psychoeducation. And, uh, you know, oftentimes primary care providers aren't given the time to do this and they are graded on their satisfaction and return visits. You know, I was just having this discussion with one of our residents today. You know, when I was a resident, I keep saying when I was a resident, but it does give us some context. I mean, psychiatric stays could could be several weeks, right? And each day we were able to talk to patients and get to know those patients, right? These days, stay. you're lucky if you get to stay a few days, right? So we don't really get to spend the amount of time we used to getting to know people, getting to know their discomfort, their trauma, their tragedy, and working with them in therapy as much as we could or should, right? So a lot of it does go. So sure, it's much easier to write a prescription and the fallout from our prescription writing is tremendous. And so we've habituated folks to these uh, benzos. Uh, That's what we're talking about today. And people have grown tolerant to them. And sadly, uh, they stop working for most everything except for anxiety. 
So when people are asking for more and more, it's because they've stopped working for sleep. And um, if people are asking for more and more for their anxiety, it, that, that's, then we've, we've missed our mark. And also if we're prescribing to people who are currently using substances or have a history of substance use, we've definitely missed our mark. You know, Gail, you've mentioned that benzodiazepines are basically alcohol in pill form. Um, so certainly stopping them abruptly or or becoming tolerant to them and needing more um, or not having, you know, the amount that you need to maintain um, can lead to withdrawal symptoms akin to alcohol withdrawal. I mean, in the past, in medical school, we were taught, you know, the 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 person that comes in for the acute gallbladder surgery and they're in the hospital for a day or two and they start going into alcohol withdrawal because they don't have any access to alcohol. I mean, you know, people that are experiencing benzodiazepine withdrawal, it, it sounds like it's it's an awful experience. And those are people that really, really need our help. Right. And actually, I was one of those people at one time. So I, I know very well of what I speak. Oftentimes, people are in the throes of what we call post-acute benzo withdrawal. It's such a complicated and strange thing. I mean, your 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 survival. We were talking about before. So you're you're trying to gain your equilibrium, and you will do anything and say anything to get a, a, a prescription refill. Uh, you know, ba- basically, and and uh, withdrawal from benzos uh, can be life threatening, especially uh, from Alprazolam or Xanax. Uh, they they're each a little different, but you know, Xanax has such a, a high street uh, value because it does make people feel the best uh, and it makes them feel the worst when they're out of it. it. It's such a confusing thing when people aren't diagnosed properly or when when we don't screen properly, right? We often see people in the hospital who have delirium. And one of the mistakes we've made is we don't realize that they've been on benzos. Benzos have stopped. We should be prescribing benzos to them. We've missed it. You know, it's it's a very complex thing uh, that we've we've created here, uh, trying to achieve comfort for people initially, right? So I think we've hit an interesting transition point here. Just we've given some background on benzodiazepines, what they are, why they're prescribed, but I think we've really hit that inflection point where we want to start talking about, you know, what we previewed in the beginning, which is that this is a drug use crisis. People are having significant consequences of being on these medications. They're having very difficult time maybe getting off of these medications. And and realistically, I think one of the big things here too, is that people are actually dying from these medications, but it's not directly right. These medications, as you mentioned, are are safe and don't kill a lot of people, but there's been a lot of combinations with things like fentanyl. Um, and, And so again, when somebody dies, from that medication and the autopsy or it goes on the news, they're like, oh, it's another fentanyl, but there was a benzodiazepine with it, right? So, oh, so true, so true. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of deaths from them. And so I really want to just transition to talking about that. And so maybe just start off with talking about, you know, how addictive are these medications and how quickly, you know, can people start to be dependent or addicted? Yeah, that that's a great point. I mean, um, again, opioids steal all the thunder, but by themselves, benzodiazepines, rarely kill, but people rarely, when they are misusing benzos, misuse them alone. Uh, So in combination with other central nervous system depressants like alcohol and opioids, uh, they become deadly, right? And oftentimes people are on several benzos, sleeping pills, et cetera, et cetera. So these can certainly stop breathing. Uh, The other way they can kill is when people are on high doses of them, 
or sometimes not even such high doses, and they stop abruptly. And people will die from seizures. Um, so they're not without consequences. And uh, we see these uh, all, all too often. Yeah. How, how addictive are they? And like, how quickly would somebody possibly be addicted to these? Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. So we were talking earlier in the podcast about short-term and long-term and what exactly is long-term. So here, here's what we know. So they're approved for short-term usage, uh, a second-line treatment for some anxiety, right? Short-term is two to four weeks, right? So these days we're offering, we should be offering them only as a bridge, right, to ease suffering, right? If people are, have extreme uh, consequences from insomnia, or certainly in the case of psychiatric emergencies, we use them in the emergency room and other acute settings. But beyond four weeks, we do not know too much. <laughs> and, the, you know, the problem is these are often used for years and years and years, right? And with every 10 days that someone is prescribed a benzo, their chances of staying on them long term go up, right? So the, the key with these is it's a tool for short term relief of certain things, right? As well as the medical uses we were talking about earlier. The problem is that when these are prescribed, they often stay prescribed. And that's why our largest population of benzo users, prescribed users, are 80-year-old ladies. Mm. So because, like Julie was saying, nobody says no. And people are very frightened to stop these medications because they're giving them far too much credit for things that they've stopped working years and years ago, right? But there's something about carrying that bottle of pills uh, and, and there's something about sort of the, the, the friendship, the relief, the relationship that's developed over years and people are, are, are horrified at the thought of going without, even though they're not really working anymore for what they were once prescribed to do. And just one more point about, you know, how addictive are they? It depends on the brain. So for people with a history of substance use or alcohol use in their family or a personal history, they're highly addictive. Hmm. So as a prescriber, if we're not asking that question first, we've, we've goofed. Yeah, that's why we, it was Valium that they called Mother's Little Helper, right? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. So that's the little pill bottle in your purse because when things get really, really rough and things are, you're freaking out and things are hard, you got to take your little friend, your little Zanny bar. And that, well, you know, that's makes, how they were marketed, right? So yeah. these things, you know, only in the United States and New Zealand do we market directly to consumers, right? Oh, that's such a so good point. We have to wonder about that. But when these first came out, they were marketed along gender lines. They were marketed to men for the executive stress syndrome and to women for exactly what you just said. And they, you know, literally pharmacy companies develop things like the battered parent syndrome and ads showed stressed out parents surrounded by evil children. So that deserves a pill. Uh, executive men, executives on the train, that deserves a pill. So we, we developed sort of a culture where it was okay to take a pill for stress relief 
that wasn't always the case before we had these pills, right? And, and, and that's what we've become, right? So if you have a feeling, take a pill, take a pill, feel a feeling. So marketing was a huge part of this. God, it's, so, it's such a great point. Like the fact that people are coming into doctor's offices and requesting specific medications because they saw them on TV is, mm-hmm. is its own systematic problem that is a huge part of this. That's just really a big point. Before we get too deep in the conversation, I really just want to make the distinction between addiction and physiologic dependence. I think yeah. people think here dependence and addiction, and they think kind of they're the same yeah. thing. And I think we'll talk about a lot of these things. I just want to have you comment on the difference yeah. between those things. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and you can have both with a benzo, but physical dependence simply means that uh, if you, if you stop the drug, you'll experience a withdrawal. And oftentimes with that comes tolerance, which means that you may need more and more of the drug to achieve the same effect. And with benzos, the interesting thing is they stop working for uh, insomnia, let's say. So you need more, right? So people are saying it stopped working, I need more. With some uh, chronic anxiety conditions, when properly prescribed by a psychiatrist, uh, benzos are necessary long-term. Uh, when this is prescribed to the proper patient, and some patients are on a low dose, steady daily dosage of a benzo without any problems, without any increase for years, this has become necessary, you know, when, when discussed properly and combined with therapy, and they don't stop working, right? Because that that's the one thing they don't stop working for is anxiety. So, and, you know, for some patients, this is necessary for them to function. It's been discussed with their psychiatrist. Other things perhaps have not worked. And, you know, we, we don't want to say that this is never indicated. Sometimes it's necessary for people to function. Uh, but uh, when people are requesting higher and higher doses, we're on the, the wrong track. Yeah. And then addiction is... So, uh, yeah, sorry. So addiction means uh, use despite harm is a simple term, but we often see things like loss of control, consequences uh, from use, uh, cravings, uh, things like things like that. So addiction is a whole nother bag of worms that often does involve tolerance and, and dependence and withdrawal. Listening to how many benzos are prescribed these days, which sounds like wildly inappropriately, I think we should think the same way we think about the usage of Afrin nasal spray or oxymetazoline nasal spray is kind of how we should think about utilizing benzos for their short-term effects of, all right, here's something that a trained healthcare professional may use to bridge you onto a better long-lasting treatment strategy. And so like, cool, here's your five days of that. And anything else on top of that is going to turn into a big problem. Yeah, you know, that's interesting you bring that up because so many of our patients are, are comforted in uh, overuse after nasal spray as well as uh, Benadryl. You know, these are very difficult things for folks to give up because they assign a lot of relief and comfort in their routine. And despite all the, you know, thumping that we, you know, this is giving you rebound and this isn't helping and this is only hurting. There's a lot of psychological relief that comes with the spray of Afrin or the pink pill of Benadryl. 
is a huge problem. Because it's just a, re- a return to norm, a return to normalcy. It's not I'm getting high off of this, or it's not oh I just feel so relaxed. It feels it's I don't feel like absolute dog shit mm-hmm. if I take this medicine. I feel like a normal human being, or like I did ten years ago when I felt like I was in a good place mentally. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. It's not that oh I just need this because I want to feel a feeling. It's <laughs> I need this or else I feel like I'm going to lose my mind. Mm-hmm. Julie, you said something really powerful in there. I don't know if you know that you said something really powerful in there, but one of the things that is really pointed out in the Netflix is like people want to feel like a normal human being, but they don't realize that normal human beings have anxiety and they don't feel the way that those medications make you feel at all times. And because we don't have the connection with human beings the way that we used to and Mm -hmm. see kind of that people struggle, you know, we go on social media and see the beautiful families and all the things that are just perfect in the world. We don't understand that, that, that anxiety and having some of those feelings, not panic attacks, but anxiety is normal. And so I think that what you said there is really, really interesting. It's a really good reflection on that. I want to talk about those 80 year olds for a second, just because I would imagine that those 80 year olds have been on it for a while. And, and and I would imagine that a lot of them don't even think that this is a problem um, and, and are functional. And so, you know, like for example, the author and Melissa in her, in her memoir, it took her a really, really long time to even realize she was having a, she had a problem. She was having some weird symptoms that she couldn't explain, but she didn't certainly blame it on her medication. Um, So I guess my question to you is like, for in general, what does this look like in real life as people are taking more of this? Do are, are most people functioning? Are most people finding out pretty quickly that they have a problem and, and, and that kind of thing? You know, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm going to give my standard. It all depends. Um, you know, but I think sadly, uh, sometimes uh, providers as well as um, patients uh, don't realize that uh, benzos are the culprits. It can become very complicated when people are stopping and starting or running out or taking uh, numerous substances together. And strangely enough, uh, people will end up with all sorts of mental and physical complications, sometimes have unnecessary uh, surgeries, um, hospital stays, et cetera. Uh, and, and benzos are the culprit, right? And thinking about one uh, person in particular who, who, uh, found himself extremely psychiatrically uh, unstabilized. And it took a while for he and his provider to realize that it was uh, acute benzo withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, occasionally people can end up with uh, psychotic symptoms like uh, hallucinations, uh, visual and auditory, or even uh, suicidal thoughts. And mm-hmm. uh, unbeknownst to the patient and the provider, the culprit was benzos, either running out or uh, taking too many. This isn't something that people want to do intentionally, um, Mm -hmm. but these aren't uh, benign uh, things that we prescribe. So oftentimes it's the starting and the stopping that can complicate things and um, or or, or the mixing uh, one on top of the other, you know, and if we're the providers prescribing two benzos and a sleeping pill, that's that's not okay. Gail, it reminds me a little bit of when we had the the alcohol talk episode thirty two. Was it Jeremy? Thirty two for those keeping count at home. Thirty two. <laughs> um, you know, I think we we talked about the you know the person that comes in with 
an acute gallbladder attack and needs an acute cholecystectomy. And that's somebody who's, who's been imbibing low level alcohol or medium level or high level alcohol for years and then goes into alcohol withdrawal in the hospital yeah. because they've spent 24 hours because they haven't had right. alcohol. Yeah. It, 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 it sounds very akin to that of like when you run out of your benzo and you don't really necessarily think that you right. need your benzo and then you stop it and now you're in this crisis state. It sounds very similar. Yeah. And I would say we don't do a good job uh, screening. You know, we're doing a better job these days when patients are admitted, you know, screening for, let's say, alcohol and certainly tobacco. But I don't think we we understand how important it is. Uh, and, and I don't think patients even understand, like we're, we're trying to sort out in this episode, what, what are benzos, but do we do a good enough job of uh, screening for these things? Because certainly urine tox screens don't pick these up. Uh, urine mm-hmm. tox screen pick up a few of the metabolites, uh, but oftentimes people don't even, you know, understand that we might even need to know about these or that they might have problems when they miss doses. Well, yeah. and a lot of people are taking them as prescribed, which I think is sometimes the, the biggest difference between some of the other drug crises is that people may be taking yes. them either when they didn't get prescriptions or they're mm-hmm. finding them on the street or whatever. Not to say that nobody's doing that for these, but many times people are just following the prescription. We've blamed yes. prescribers a lot in this episode. And I think that that's, that's another kind of like feather in that cap is that we don't think these medications are causing the problem because people come in with symptoms, but they're just taking it as, as it was prescribed. They're not doing anything they weren't told to do. Right, right. So there, there's there's a actually, there's an interesting new category that's been suggested called complicated benzodiazepine dependence, because this has nothing to do with misuse or addictive behavior, but this is something that's created itself over time and people are unable to stop these because of the physical dependence, right? So with it becomes an inability to stop. It's complicated. Can there be signs and symptoms of that even without stopping the medication or changing your dose? Like if somebody's just been on it constantly and has that condition, can, what are some of those signs and symptoms people would be feeling? So there can be a fear to stop in, you know, like uh, Julie was saying, so this would be a complicated discussion uh, with your provider and over crediting the benzo with providing more relief than it has. And it's often very difficult uh, to sort of chart a course with these patients, it, it takes some doing. And this would be a very slow discontinuation process. You know, we used to think two weeks of a, a clonopin taper, uh, which I experienced myself, and I'm here to say it does not work. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's why Heather Ashton wrote the manual, hmm. right? So in 1999, in response to all of us dopey physicians in the United States, Heather Ashton wrote a manual And when I was later treating patients, uh, a patient brought this in to me in my private practice. He was on a benzo. He wanted to stop. And I was telling him that what we were going to do was a two-week clonopin taper. And he said, I wonder if you'd be open to reading this. And I I read it, and I called him that night. And I said, "Uh, let's do this. And I, I was bowled over because this was new, and she actually was telling us in the United States that uh, this was a horrific thing we were putting patients through and not to be done. And it had to be done much more subtly and over time when people had been on benzos for really longer than, you know, 
a, a few weeks. So it's a, it's a complicated thing. And I also realized that my own suffering had been due to post-acute benzo withdrawal, which can be a nightmare. My favorite sentences in that Ashton manual, which I have now read, is the first three sentences of it when she says that she ran a clinic for 12 years and much of what she knows about the subject was taught to her by the brave and long-suffering men and women that mm -hmm. she was treating, yeah. that the patients taught her. And, and yeah. Yeah. I mean, how, just for like two seconds to sit in that sentence and understand how much we can learn from patients. And if we just mm -hmm. sat and had more time to like mm -hmm. actually listen to people, what we could do. It's so hard not to, especially when it comes to very subjective feelings of like, you telling me to go on this two week long clonopin taper was a, a horrible journey of suffering for me, but I can't really explain that to you. And, and in doing so, I have to use language that maybe I don't understand. And, and I, and I feel like I'm whining and I don't know how to, and I'm also in a, in a, you know, in a very anxious state and I don't know, I'm not getting my words out right. And, and you're, and I feel like you don't believe me and no one believes me. And it's just such a, a sad suffering state that if we don't like try to sit and empathize for again, like two seconds <laughs> to listen to people and validate their concerns, what a disservice we may be doing them. And it seems like everything hard. in the media right now is like Bravo rehab, right? And you just, you just go to yeah. one of these like fancy hotel rehabs and you're there for like a, you know, few weeks and you'll be off your pills and everything's fine. And I, I would love to dive a little deeper, um, Gail into kind of what you were talking about there, because obviously, you know, you said some powerful stuff, both personally and also with some patients. I, I'd love to talk about what it what it's like to come off these medications, because I think that those stories are maybe what has stood out the most on why these drugs should not be prescribed that the way that they're being prescribed. Well, you know, interestingly that, you know, the evidence shows us now that these um, short term stays and detoxes don't work in that the majority of folks find their way back uh, to benzos, right? So <clears throat> benzos have such a high street value because people need to go back on them, right? Because that state of uh, disequilibrium is horrific, right? Now, I was taken abruptly off of benzos. Actually, I was taken off in, in three days uh, at, at a rehab facility. Uh, I, don't, I don't think the medical profession knew any better at that time, but I had... Uh, uh, some people I was uh, there with actually seizing. This was considered okay. Uh, so clearly there were other people on benzos. Uh, I did not have seizures, but I probably was in post-acute withdrawal for two years, which, you know, it's, it's horrific to think about. But um, it's a, it is a state of disequilibrium. And I actually had some complex sleepwalking, sleep-talking, uh, behavior that I now, now looking back on it, it was certainly post-acute benzo withdrawal, but it can, it's, it's physically and mentally uh, horrific. And um, I'm lucky that I could afford to take a year off of work uh, and, you know, that I had insurance and a family who didn't abandon me. But uh, uh, this, this, it was uh, almost unbearable. I, I didn't sleep for several weeks. When people tell you they aren't sleeping, they're not sleeping, right? So, you know, to be in a sheltered environment for 28 days was lucky, uh, but I don't think I, I took too much in mentally uh, because, you know, so this post-acute withdrawal is no joke. Um, you know, I, I, I think 
though luckily, and what we're able to do in a clinic like mine at Rush uh, is to help avoid this pain and suffering. So people needn't be put through this now and uh, nobody needs suffer. So we, we can do several things. And oftentimes what we'll do is what we call a slow taper. Uh, so we can uh, cross titrate someone from let's say Xanax uh, to we generally prefer Valium. I'm, I'm using trade names, we'll just go with it. Um, so, uh, and it can be very slow and we, we give patients schedules. They have nothing to fear. Nobody needs to be sleepless or seizing or trembling. And then we can also add in medications for comfort and mental stability. So my, my uh, I guess my disappointment or my, my, uh, yeah, my disappointment with the, the second part of Melissa Bond's book was that she, under a physician care, had continued suffering, right? So she describes having to move away from her children and move out of her home and devote time to, you know, some sort of prolonged suffering benzoyl withdrawal, which, uh, like, to me, it, it seemed very, if I were a patient facing this, I don't I don't know that that would give me a tremendous amount of hope, but I'm here to say that we do this with folks all the time and people are able to continue to work and parent and drive cars and the whole deal. So it's, there's, there's no drama. It's not easy, uh, but it can be done. We do it with people every day. And to underline that, because these medications require, in many cases, such a slow, long taper under the guidance of a very well-trained addiction medicine specialist or psychiatrist such as yourself, Gail, you know, if someone realizes the benzo that they're taking might be a problem or they read all the scary information on the internet or listen to this podcast, the tendency may often just be like, I'm just going to stop at cold turkey, uh, just the same way that we, you know, people might say, I'm just going to quit drinking, even though I've been drinking a bottle of wine every night for the, for the past five years. Let's tell everybody again. That's a terrible idea. That's a terrible idea. Tell us why. That's a terrible <laughs> tell idea. Us why you 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 can quit an opioid cold turkey. Yeah, that's where the expression comes from. You cannot do that with alcohol or benzo. That's a terrible idea. Because you could die. You could correct? die. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a very high scary chance of death of in that in that scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Gil, I want to thank you for sharing your story. Um, yeah. I'm not. I'm sure that that is not the easiest thing to talk about, but obviously explains your personal connection to this, this topic um, and the people that you continue to help with it. Um, because it, it, I mean, even practicing providers like Julie and myself up until recently, I would, I'm going to speak for myself and say, I didn't even realize how big of a problem this was. I mean, I certainly knew how many people were on benzos, but I was not completely aware of you know, the chronic usage that could lead to problems, even just being on the medication. You know, I kind of figured it needed a taper. I, when I was in residency, we we had people come in withdrawing from alcohol all the time and, and we'd have to like help them withdraw in the hospital because we couldn't send them home safely. They didn't want to keep drinking and we would use benzodiazepines to do that. And, and so it's a situation where awareness is so important. And so things like that Netflix documentary and the memoir and other things just giving people awareness that, uh, that these things are, are, they can be dangerous more than just overdosing or, or withdrawing that they can be taking them for long times is scary and that it's not the answer. And so 
I think Julie and I both, we treat a lot of physical pain in our clinics. And I think, Julie, I may be speaking for myself, but you can confirm in your clinic. I feel like most people don't want to take opioids anymore. Like you come in and you say, do you want to talk about an opioid? Because, you know, obviously you haven't slept in a few nights and this is really bad pain. And we're not going to do it for a long time. And I still think the vast majority of people are like, I really just want to stay away from those. Um, and and I think that for the most part, that's probably a really good thing. Um, you know, I think that they are a good medication for certain indications. And it seems like these benzodiazepines are, are good medications for certain indications. And as providers, we should definitely appreciate that, that they have uses. But I, I would love to see the transition from benzodiazepines to be kind of that same attitude we have with opioids. And it's just hasn't gotten there because it hasn't gotten the same attention that all the deaths from opioids have gotten. I agree wholeheartedly, Jeremy. I, I do. I would say exactly. I don't know if there's some sort of selection bias of our patients or if it, it is a, it is a uh, accurate slice of Americana right now, but I will tell you, you know, when I offer somebody a pain medication because they're coming in for an acute thing, they, they sprain their ankle and it hurts a lot and whatever, like one, I'm never offering them an opioid. And when I offer them a, you know, like an NSAID or something, a, a more benign, quote unquote, acute pain medication management, a lot of patients are like, that's not one of those scary drugs, right? Like, that's not a, that's not a, that's not like an Oxycontin, right? And I'll be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> so I think you're right. I think it, it is nice to see the pendulum swing in that direction. And I think Gail was right to say like, yeah, the opioids have gotten all the attention because of the horrible epidemic that we have been going through for years and, and, and the awareness, like you were talking about, Jeremy, that's so extremely important. So, um, I'm so, I'm so grateful for this conversation. I'm so grateful for that Netflix documentary. I'm so grateful for the book that you, you both have read and I have not, I'm sorry. Um, that is, is shedding light on this very, very, very prevalent problem. And I give all the credit to people like Gail and Gail yourself for being at the forefront of managing this appropriately and providing valid evidence-based med uh, uh, medical information that helps us understand it a bit better. Gail, is there anything that you, we haven't talked about or anything you would you frequently want to say to people on a more public level about, you know, this situation? Um, well, I mean, I think to our, our, our prescribers, I, I think one thing we're doing is, is especially to our, our students, residents, fellows, nurse practitioners, et cetera. I think we're we're teaching proper prescribing uh, practices. So I, I I think hopefully we we learn from our errors. So I I think if people aren't on bentos, there's there's really not a reason to start. So I think we can reduce the uh, the surplus, right? Uh, thereby reducing the risk for overuse, misuse. Um, and, and just like with the opioids, I, I, I think we're going to slowly start to reverse this mess. It's going to take a long time. Um, I, I think a, a, a great source of education is the Ashton Manual, because I think everybody, uh, these are very widely prescribed. So I think one in eight adults have been prescribed a benzo. Generally, people are curious about sleeping pills and benzos or have a family member who struggled um, especially an older family member. So I always encourage people to read the Ashton Manual. Um, I think it's, it's, it's compassionate, it's patient and provider friendly. So oftentimes it's a good thing for, for us, you know, we as providers to read. Uh, it'll teach us far more than any textbook. Um, 
you know, I just think we have to c continue conversations like this because just like, like you, Jeremy, and I, I think patient stories go far. Like you were mm -hmm. trusted in this book. And I think this book does a good job of, um, um, we've talked a lot about uh, psychic discomfort and, um, you know, I think the thing we mustn't do is be quick to pick up our pen or our computer and, and just try to prescribe instant relief uh, in this day and age. It's, you know, no, no, nobody really needs a benzo like we yeah. want yeah. they did. Well, it's that anxiety is anxiety inducing. So when you have a patient that's yeah. coming to yeah. you who is a nervous wreck, yeah. that that is absorbed very easily by the provider yeah. as well. Somebody's got to stay calm in the do... room. Yeah. Yeah, doctors know, doctors are humans be... too, yeah. right? Yeah. Somebody's got to stay calm. And we want to be helpful. We want to we want to help solve your problem. And if and if it's like if the if the volume is turned up to eleven yeah. in that yeah. room, you know you want something that's going to make everything more palatable yeah. for everybody. So it's very, you get it. That's why it's very yeah. easy. And if, if you're going to prescribe, you you gotta you gotta have a deep prescribing plan for us on the yeah. provider side. If you're going to start, you gotta have a stop plan, which is something we yeah we 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 have to be much much better about. What a, right. what a great bumper sticker for prescribers or just clinicians. <laughs> just like anytime you prescribe, already think about your de-prescribing plan it's, with any it's, medication. It's true. And, yeah. It can't be all gas and no break, no. man. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think one more thing I would say for providers is, is don't just, you know, like anytime people have, or people are having symptoms, uh, make sure you look at the medication list and don't, don't just assume yeah. that it's organic symptoms that certainly uh, medication lists can be a reason for that. So de-prescribing in general, you know, de yeah. decreasing medication exposure. So I love that. Okay. Yeah. Um, this, this was really powerful. We'll put the Ashton manual link into the um, show notes. Any other resources Gail provides to us, we'll make sure that those are in the show notes. Anybody struggling with this, I'm sure that there, there may be some people listening that this could be a little trick or make you concerned. Certainly, obviously, we've we've put resources in the past for the crisis hotline, um, and we'll make sure that that's in the show notes as well. If you're ever concerned about safety, you need to be calling 911. Um, at the end of the day, ultimately, if you're worried, see a trusted provider. There's addiction medicine specialists, there's psychiatrists, there's even primary care providers who are linked into uh, uh, health networks can give you access to things. So don't be afraid to ask questions and uh, uh, look at introspectively as well. Um, Julie, I, I'm going to let you finish the line, but the, the one thing I wanted to finish with, which I thought was really powerful from from the Netflix documentary was, you know, really a, 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 a few sentences that, that I kind of condensed down that, that really the only way to address the anxiety that somebody is experiencing is to really confront it and work through it. And so taking a pill can make you feel better, but it doesn't build resiliency and it doesn't build the ability to then come back stronger each time to try to figure out ways because the anxiety isn't going to go anywhere and we all experience anxiety. So I loved the theme of this episode that we just did and the theme of that documentary that pills are not going to be our answer um, and they are really just a tool to help in the short term. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, I do have a, a, I have a, I have an outro. You always come through. Well, actually, Gail, it was Gail's idea. She, Gail partially quoted the, the Ferris Bueller quote. And I thought that I would end it with our own little spin on it, if that's okay. So uh, it starts with, life moves pretty fast. If you take too many Xanax, you might miss it. 
<laughs> the amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. (laughs) 